Today's sermon text is Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. It is, and I don't just say this, it is a, a delight to be with you this morning, it really is, on uh, Trinity Flannel Day. It's great to be with you. It was, uh, it was fun this morning to watch Malachi start to piece it together. That's a lot of flannel, he kept saying. That's a lot of flannel. Did you wear that on purpose? <clears throat> and uh, actually, I think I have maybe one or two flannel shirts, but I affectionately call this shirt my Malachi shirt. So <laughs> um, in, all, uh, in, in all candor, it is really hot to wear flannel, flannel in October. But I'm, I don't know where Malachi is now, but I'm doing it for you, Malachi. So anyhow, it's great to be with you. Um, I love Malachi and love Stephen and love this church. Um, I was here a couple years ago to preach on your mission Sunday. And, uh, but, but also, my wife and I snuck in on the Sunday morning when the um, transfer, the installation of Malachi and Josh Vincent was here. It's another dear friend of mine. And so we were able to be a part of that Sunday morning with you. And just what a, what a beautiful what a beautiful service that was, what a beautiful picture, and just be able to stand and watch as God is using this church in this city in this place um, for the sake of his kingdom has just been really, really encouraging. And, and Trinity Bible Church, uh, for the sake of the gospel, has such a great reputation across the state. And so I praise God for you, I praise God for Malachi and for Stephen and for your elders. Uh, you're already in uh, Acts chapter 4, we've heard the word already read. <clears throat> I'm not sure if you remember this far back. But on March 15th, 2020, how many of you remember that far back? March 15th, 2020, there were some things happening on that weekend. On March 15th, 2020, the world was, as we knew it, was turned upside down. That was a crazy week. That was a crazy weekend. You know it's getting crazy when March Madness gets canceled. Like, they're not canceling March Madness you know, for no reason. There's way too much money involved in March Madness. And March Madness got canceled. Flights were canceled. Airports were ghost towns. It was a wild weekend. No one knew what was going on. No one knew what to expect. The world effectively stopped on that weekend. 
And the threat of sickness and the threat of death and the unknown, it loomed large over all, and not just in America, but across the world. Churches closed for a period of time, moved to live stream. Political figures pointed fingers in every direction as to what the answers were or who to blame. As you so, so uh, clearly remember, there were battles for what to believe, what was true, who could be trusted. It seemed like every conversation was a potential threat in those days. And now that we've settled into what is affectionately post-COVID era, you know, even though I had COVID like a month ago, but we're in the post-COVID era, it feels to me like we've lived the last three years of life on high alert. Our nervous systems are shot. Our adrenals are begging for mercy. There's threats all around us. And we don't quite know how to respond. Threats have three things in common, at least. Maybe more, but here's three for this morning. First, threats tempt us to fear. Because they can take something away or they can cause some problem. It costs us something. And so it tempts us to fear. <coughs> threats tempt us to become self-focused. Can't think about others because I've got so much to think about for just myself and in front of me. And threats tempt us to abandon the mission that we're on and the purposes that we're on altogether because vision for the future gets lost when all you can see is what's right in front of your face and right now. And the church of Christ, historically, since her inception, has found herself in the midst of opposition, persecution, threats that have threatened to scatter the church, threatened to destroy the church and the gospel. And yet, the historical record is the church continues to march forward. And so the church has lived through opposition and, and persecution and threats like Nero in the first century and the, all the horrific things that took place for Christians in that day. And yet the church continued to grow. The church lived through the Black Plague of the mid-1300s and the church continued to grow. Now we can say the church has lived through the COVID era and the church has continued to grow. And yet even now as we, as we sit here today, the church faces incredible challenges across this country and across the world. Christians are dying for their faith. It is so hard to really feel that here in sort of pseudo-suburban America. Christians are dying for their faith. There are more martyrs who died for their faith in the 20th century than in all other 19th centuries combined. The world, as we know, is unstable and ultimately is at war with God. There are threats all around. One of our closest friends, my wife and I's closest friends, a pastor in Gilbert, him and his wife were traveling. They were in Tel Aviv. They left Tel Aviv at 12.30 in the morning on the night of the attacks. They got, and then the attacks happened at 5.30 in the morning. And yet, threats around to our life, threats around to our, our gospel, threats around to our existence as a church, what we see historically is the church has always been the keeper of the light, has always been the, 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 the ones pouring out into the darkness so that the world can see what's actually real and so that the world can see where real hope is actually found. That's one of the, the beauties of God's church. And so when the church is situated in a time like ours, which is faced with threats all around, both to our existence and also to what we, what we believe in terms of the gospel, 
The church is meant to be light pushing back into darkness. What my heart beats for in this sermon is for the kind of boldness, that God would give us the kind of boldness to the church that, that the church has always shown in times of challenges and in times of threats and in time of persecution. Just because there's challenges doesn't mean that we can't be bold for Jesus. In fact, it's in times of challenge where we ought to be, in light of the grace we've received, the most clearly bold for Jesus. And here's what I'm, I'm, I'm as I'm building this out till we get to Acts chapter 4, what generates confidence and genuine boldness in the face of threats, whether it's <clears throat> dealing with viruses or governments or wars or attacks on the church and culture, what generates confidence is not foolish bravado or brashness. It's not just sort of like, you know, rah-rah for the church. That's not going to do anything. Here's what, here's what God's building in the church, a genuine faith-driven boldness that comes from being convinced, convinced, convinced of the gospel truths. Being convinced of the gospel truths and being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what produces confidence. Being convinced of the gospel truths and being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's simple. You put those two together, it's explosive. And that's what we're going to see in our passage this morning. It's an explosive combination. I'm asking you, as we begin up front, let this passage search you and sift you as to which direction you flinch as a Christian and maybe as in a sense of which direction do you flinch as a church when opposition threatens to scatter you? Where do you go? Where do you turn? As we enter our passage, I just want to just give a little bit of context. Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, Holy Spirit falls on the disciple. The Lord adds to their numbers. They share all things in common. They're, they're, they're sharing the fellowship and the breaking of bread. And the Lord's added to their numbers day by day. Those who are being saved, so there's an evangelistic outreach and the church is loving on each other, and they're, sharing their, they're generously sharing their things with one another. In chapter 3, <clears throat> excuse me, in chapter 3, God uses Peter and John to heal a man who was lame, and he gets up and he walks, and it understandably creates quite a stir. There's a big crowd that gathers. They preach the gospel. They get arrested. They're detained. They're questioned. Why are you doing this? They get to preach the gospel some more. And there's nothing that the rulers can do about it because the evidence of this healing is right there in front of them blatantly for all to see. There's no way to deny it. And so the best they can do is say, hey, stop talking about Jesus. Probably with some threats that they're going to be arrested again or beaten if they continue on. And so then they release Peter and John to go back to the disciples. That's where we pick it up in our text. They release them to go never to speak about Jesus again. Is that what they do? Let's find out. Let's pray one more time. Father, bless this word, bless this preaching, bless this church so that we may stand tall in genuine gospel-driven boldness, being convinced of your gospel and being filled with the Spirit. Fill us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's how I picture this scene unfolding. You're, you're, you're texting your community group, whether it's Wednesday night or Sunday night, or you know, you're on your WhatsApp or whatever thread you use to communicate, and you're texting, hey, community group's happening, who's bringing the food, and everyone's chiming in, and no one hears from Peter and John. 
And Peter and John are the, are the chatty ones in the group. And so it's really unusual that they're not texting back. And so everyone begins to get worried. Peter, John, where are you? What's going on? Are you okay? No reply. Finally, there's a post from Peter and from John. And here's what it says. We were arrested for preaching the resurrection. The high priest threatened our lives, told us never to speak or teach about Jesus again. They want to shut this Christianity thing down now. They say that if we do, they might kill us, and they're coming after you next. How would you respond if you got that text, in, you know, from your community group? I can imagine there's always the person in the group who's going to send back a meme. <laughs> right? Like, oh... Here's what, I, here's what I actually picture, because the text says, <clears throat> can I go back and just read it very quickly, verse 20, 23? When they were released, they went to their friends and reported to the chief priests and the el- reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So they're like, this is exactly the lowdown as to what took place. And so what I a- actually picture happening as they share this report is that they are completely afraid. There's an instant, I, I'm, I'm, I'm using my imagination, I think that there could be instant fear because that's how we process threats, fear, costly. Fear grips this room as they hear how much danger they're in. Not just Peter and John. It was all good when it was Peter and John, right? It's like, we're, we're with you, we're praying for you. But now that it's not just Peter and John, now it's, it's to all of them. This threat is spreading. It's infectious. It's against the whole church. If the church, and this is what I think they're facing, if the church continues to be the church, if the church seeks to love their city with the truth of the gospel and doesn't compromise on doctrine, if the church preaches something crazy like Jesus is the only king in a culture that wants to king all sorts of other people, if they continue to preach that Jesus is the only way in a culture that says all roads lead to heaven, If they continue to be the church, they will face opposition. And I know it's not apples to apples, and our our context is different than their context. I do think there's overlap for what their experience is and for what ours is. And great fear can grip us in our culture. Where there is fear, there is choice in how you respond. Will you respond self-focused? self-interestedly, is that a word? In your own self-interest, will you respond that way first at the expense of others? Or will you respond with Christ's focus and Christ's glory and Christ's good for the good of others? I think that the challenge is very similar between what they would have faced in us. And what I want us to see as we look at this text is how do these disciples respond to the fear-gripping news? How do they respond when they hear about this threat, when their way of life is very easily about to be disrupted? And how can we learn from them? How can we learn from them? And the astonishing and instructive example of the church is found in verse 24. I want you to look at it with me again, verse 24. When they hear these reports... They do the most important thing they can do. They don't go out and buy guns. They don't go out and buy ammo. 
They, they, they give themselves to the greatest weapon that they have. And when they heard it, verse 24, they lifted their voices together to God. They began to pray. I just love this picture. I love the picture of their relationship that they have with God. It's so vibrant. It's so real. It's so genuine. If there's a problem, what should we do? We should pray. Now, prayer is not the only response, as we're going to see later in the book, but prayer is certainly the most appropriate response when we face challenges, opposition, trials, threats. And let's be honest, it is probably most likely for most of us, I'm not saying that there's not one or two of you in this room who is like upper echelon Christian, but for the majority of us normal people, it's often not the first thing that we think about doing. In fact, in preparing to, study, to preach this message, I was regularly convicted of the moments in this week where I was like, man, I am not good at this. But it is the right first response. Prayer declares that God stands at the center of every solution to every problem. That's what prayer does. It might not always feel like it, but that's what it does. And when we don't be with prayer, we're saying the opposite. We're saying that we stand at the center of the solutions for all the problems. We have all of the wisdom. We have all of the resources. We can do it by ourselves. We don't need you, God. Thank you very much. And none of that is actually true. And if we've learned anything in these post-COVID days, we've learned that we need God even to just gather together as a church. Just to get in the same room, we need God. The church hears the news from Peter and John, and what does it move them to do? It moves them to pray. They begin to pray. And as they begin to pray, we learn some things about what God wants to teach us in the response of prayer. I think the first thing is to look at is how do they pray? How do they pray? The gospel compels us as, ch as a church to pray with unity. How did they pray? They prayed with unity. Look again at verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. They prayed in one voice. The word here for voice, though translated into the plural in our English, says their voices, it's actually written in the singular. They are lifting up their collective hearts and minds together in unity to pray. That strikes me as really unique. To get a bunch of different people into a room and all have them agree on something is really hard. That strikes me as something uncommon. Even in the church, so quickly, what, 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 we, what we center our minds and hearts on can so quickly be the things that divide us, the things we disagree on. I'm not talking about the difference between orthodoxy and heresy, which are clearly battles worth fighting to preserve the purity of the gospel that we've received. And I know, I know Malachi so well that he leads with such great clarity and nuance in what those matters are. I'm not talking about that kind of, you know, that kind of, of disagreement. I'm talking about the petty squabbles that break out in churches about things that in the end, in the end, are eternally insignificant things. That's what I'm talking about. How long was that meeting supposed to last? Oh, it went too long. What kind of music did you prefer? Raising third-level doctrines to sort of like, this is the most important thing, and I'm going to dig my heels in unless you do it my way. And we miss that we are at war with, our, with, with the sworn enemy of our souls, 
We're in a war, and we're back at the camp arguing about the proper temperature of rice and beans. Now, maybe at culinary school, that's fine, but that's not what the church is. The church is here to make disciples and to make disciple-making disciples and to plant churches of disciples that are disciple-making churches. That's the mission, and we must not get distracted from our charge because of tertiary disagreements. One benefit, if you can call it that, of the last season of, of, of life when the church experiences threats and challenges and, and all those kinds of things is it gives tremendous clarity about what is actually truly important and what's truly primary and what is indeed secondary. You know, one of the things I said to my wife before we came this morning was, one of the things I'm so excited about in being here at Trinity Bible this morning is to just sing with you to be in the room with other Christians to sing. I don't take that for granted in the same way that I might have on March 14th of 2020. What a joy it is that we can be together and be about the primary things that God has for us. As this church in Acts 4 hears the report, whatever else they had planned for the day, whatever secondary matters they had going on in their ministry fell to the wayside, and they unify together in prayer. That's the way secondary matters work. They're secondary Toilet paper matters, but it's secondary to your soul. It falls to the wayside. God wants us as a church to lift up our voices for the mission that he's called us to, for the souls that he's called us to, the souls that are in deep panic, the souls that are in deep distress, the souls that don't have the same kind of hope that we have in Christ. And so we gather together as a church and churches across the state and country and world, and we pray. I'm so grateful for the example that your pastors have set for you and modeled for you here to have times of corporate prayer. It's so important to pray for the world, to pray for our nation, to pray for this state, to pray for the city, to pray for our neighborhoods, to pray for other gospel-preaching churches, to pray for, for you, the people of Trinity Bible Church, that you be filled with, with joy and hope in the gospel and not just be Sunday churchgoers, that you would love holiness, to pray that you would love the mission, that you'd give your life for Christ, that you'd flourish in his church. See, I think the irony is that threats are meant to stop the mission of God, but they can never really do that. The church always unifies, clarifies, and grows. One of the key repeats in the book of Acts is whenever there's scattering happens and the word of God increased and multiplied. And so God uses threats to clarify and to unify. When we pray together as church, as a church, as a body with one voice, we can be confident that God who's on the move for his mission will move on our behalf. He sovereignly ordains for us to pray so they can hear those prayers and answer those prayers because of who he is. So how do we pray? We pray with unity. And secondly, we're going to see to whom did they pray? And when we answer this, we see why they're able to pray with faith. The gospel compels us to pray with faith. Look at verse 24 through 28. Their prayers here are addressed to the God of all authority and power. They're, they're, they're praying on the authority, on the basis of the character of God. Let's read it again, starting again in verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? This is quoting from Psalm 2. We'll come to it in a moment. 
The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Look at the way that their prayer starts. The first words off their lips is sovereign Lord. They hear the threats. Fear grips their heart. They begin to pray, sovereign Lord. If only those two words were the first two words off of our lips when we face threats, opposition, challenges, persecution, and trials. When your tire blows out on the freeway and you slide off to the side of the road, if only sovereign Lord were the first two words off of our lips. Or when the unexpected medical bill shows up or when the kids spill their cereal bowl of milk on the ground again, when you can't figure out what your next step in life is, when you get a cancer diagnosis, when you're left out at the workplace because of what you believe and for righteousness, sovereign Lord is what's gripping their prayer. It's this, it's this awareness that God's all-extending authority over all of the cosmos is so present and so real that when we begin, we have to acknowledge that everything that's taking place takes place underneath the authority, power, and goodness of God, who is the sovereign Lord. You do realize, right, that there can only be one sovereign Lord, right? To be sovereign is to have control. To be Lord is to have power. So to be the sovereign Lord means there's only one that can be the sovereign Lord. Inflation is never going to be sovereign. COVID is never sovereign. Stock markets going up and down, not sovereign. Whoever wins the next presidential election is not sovereign. There is only one sovereign Lord in all of the universe, and it's God. God alone, God Almighty is sovereign. And this God who is sovereign and his Lord knows you and loves you, which blows my mind. God knows us and loves us and cares for us even as he stands as the sovereign Lord. Luke 12, verses 4 through 7 says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. God is sovereign in his authority, and he knows you, and he cares about you, and you are valuable to him. He knows every stubble on your bald head. He knows every hair on your head. He loves you. He knows you. And that is what you need to have in terms of gospel convictions, that he loves you and gave himself for you through his son Christ to die for your sins, that you'd be made new in Christ to live for him. That's what you need to have in order to have courage to follow him into his mission. This prayer continues. Sovereign Lord, it's who they're praying to, and what, what else do we learn about this sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them? That's a lot. Heaven, earth, sea, and everything that's in them, meaning he's creator. He's over all things. 
He's not just, you know, doesn't just hold the title of sovereign Lord, but then has no authority or no, no ability. No, he is the very one who holds the fabric of their tunics together. He's the very one that holds the cells in your bones together. If it weren't for God, you would disintegrate. He, he made your lungs to breathe oxygen. He gave us oxygen to breathe. This is the one that all things depend on. God owns all things and all things depend on him and all things are in subjection to him because God is unrivaled in his power. Do you believe that? I mean, if God is sovereign and he's Lord and he's made all things, heaven, earth, sea, and filled them with all things, who can be bigger? What threat can be bigger? Who's stronger? Who's greater? No one. And that's what they're trying to establish in this prayer, taking it to the next level. He's not just sovereign in creation. He's sovereign in the unfolding of human history, verses 25 and 26. After declaring that he's the sovereign Lord, that he has authority, and then declaring that in his sovereign power, he's also the creator, the author Luke now records this part of the prayer as further grounds for why God should answer their prayers. And he goes to Psalm 2, begins to quote Psalm 2. What they're doing in this psalm is they're establishing who God is so that when they ask him for something, the basis has been laid for the one that they're talking to. And so they go to Psalm 2 to establish that this God is the God that's been on the move. And if you think about this just for a few moments, it just kind of blows your mind. He's been on the move for the sake of his glory and for the sake of his gospel since before the earth was formed. Okay, so, so I don't know about you, but like I love, I get into new hobbies and new, you know, I get into this thing and then I do that for about three weeks and I'm like, okay, that's cool. Let's try this thing. And then I move on. I like to try a lot of different things. God's been doing one basic main thing, which is glorifying himself through the purposes of the gospel since before the earth was made. And that's what he's been doing. He's working in human history to prepare the world for the coming of the Messiah, the anointed one, Jesus. That's what he was doing when none of us existed. That's what he was doing. And so they could have prayed from a host of Old Testament passages to make the point, but they ground their faith in the God of Psalm 2, which was written by David, verse 25, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. This psalm captures the rejection of God and Israel by the Gentile nations. And so it's not a surprise, not a, not a secret that psalm, in Psalm 2 that God's chosen people are going to face hostility. They're going to face challenges. The Gentiles rage. People are plotting against God. There is this battle that's happening. Kings and rulers take up forces against God. And God promises that there, that there would be people who would want nothing to do with him and nothing to do with his servants. That's Psalm 2. Now, here is what is highly unusual. What is unusual about this prayer is how the disciples see in it, in Psalm 2, how they see it being fulfilled in Jesus. In other words, they're quoting Psalm 2, and now we're going to see in verse 27 that, that Jesus is the illustration, the outworking of what this psalm was pointed forward to. So it's quoted, right? Here it is. So this is what David said. Now look at verse 27. For truly in this city... Okay, this is going to be the outworking of what Psalm 2 said. In this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, the anointed one. 
And who's gathered together? Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So, as they're praying to the sovereign one, the creator over all the world, the one who holds all of human history in his hands, they see his sovereign redemption at work in history to bring about Jesus. Do you see that in this text? He is the one that they say is the Messiah who has been rejected and not just rejected by unbelieving Gentile nations like Psalm 2 says, yes, but also by the Romans, Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with, you see this, the peoples of Israel. So he's tracing culpability here. And everyone had a hand in killing Jesus. That's what he's saying. And then this. And this is exactly what God plant. This is exactly what God promised. Persecution, opposition against the anointed one. Look carefully at verse 27. To do whatever God's hand, that's his action in the world, and your plan had predestined to take place. This is not an accident. They're praying with faith as the threats come in the middle of persecution because there's a sovereign Lord who is the creator of the world and who has been working in human history with a purpose and a plan to overcome suffering, the suffering caused by sin and the removal of sin from his people through the very suffering of the Son, Jesus Christ. And they believe it. And it anchors their faith. Do you believe that? If you believe that, it will change your life. If you understand this, it will change your life. The, whenever, I'm, whenever in my life I start to get sort of like wonky on life and things just don't seem to make sense, I always go back to the cross, the exhibit A of God's justice and love and mercy and power and grace all meeting together in this atoning act of the Son Jesus on behalf of me, a sinner. That anchors my faith. That helps me to remember God understands suffering because he had his own son die in my place. So threats and opposition and persecution and suffering while difficult should not surprise us as Christians or as a church just like it didn't surprise them because it hasn't surprised God. Do you see this in the text? Are you seeing this with me? I'm not making this up. This is here, right? God predestined these things to take place so that it can compel us as his followers to pray with faith. Why? Because the God to whom we pray to is sovereign over all creation and sovereign over human history, sovereign over COVID and crescendoing all of his actions with the beauty of the gospel to save sinners. He's moving all of human history towards a final day. And listen, friends, nothing, nothing, nothing can stop the gospel. Nothing, no threats. They could throw us all in jail, won't stop the gospel. They could kill us all, won't stop the gospel. And it's so easy to lose sight of this because fear is real when God is small. And it doesn't take national tragedies or war, you know, to, to experience sort of the fear, right? We have, in my own family, probably you're the same as me, face much smaller challenges in my family and our health, 
finances, my parenting, our marriage, and you can feel like the world is spinning out of control. So I actually, I preached at the Grove Conference a few weeks ago. Malachi preached also, did a wonderful job. And the night that I preached, that Friday night, I drove home with my wife and we got a piece of news. And I was leaving the conference kind of like riding high. I was like, this was a great night. And I get a piece of news and I'm like, I have no idea what to do. And I'm just like, the balloon's deflated. I'm like, I have no idea. I have no idea. And you got to go back to the basics every single time as to who is God? What has he done? How can we get confidence in the gospel? God has never been nor ever will be outside of the driver's seat and the gospel stands as living proof. Exhibit A. So always go back to the cross to build your faith. So we pray with unity. We pray with faith. But what should we pray for as we pray with unity and faith? And this is third and last. The gospel compels us to pray for fruit in the mission. Look at what they pray for in verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. I just want to pause so you can see, because there's sort of a, a strain in Christianity where sort of people don't really, not you guys, but others, that don't, don't call things like it really is. And so to be a Christian means to sort of not acknowledge that there's anything wrong, that there's any pain, and everything is good, and that God's good. And, and to not. But they're clearly saying here, look on these threats. There is a problem. There is a danger. So they're not ignoring it, and they're not sugarcoating it. Look upon the threats, and here's what we want you to do. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand and heal, we'll speak. You stretch out your hand to heal. Signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They don't pray judgment on their enemies. They're not even asking God to make the persecution stop. Instead, they're praying for God to work in the midst of their suffering. They're praying for power to continue speaking with boldness in the middle of the persecution. Their prayers are for the success of the divinely delegated mission. Now, you cannot make a good argument that there's, that there, that there's not more to pray for than just this. Right? It's not wrong to pray that God would deliver you from evil. See the end of the Lord's Prayer. Okay, so I can't make an argument that this is all I can pray for, but shouldn't we be strengthened for just a moment to pray for something beyond deliverance? Check out your prayers over the last week and just ask, how many times is what I'm praying for? Deliverance. Not wrong, not bad. Lord, would you deliver me from this circumstance? Or would you deliver my friend from sickness? Would you provide for me in this way? You know, we, we pray for deliverance often. Would you bring someone to clean up that milk that my kid spilled on the ground? Could you, could you provide? But it's not just about delivering us from sickness. Yes, it is and ultimately is delivering us from sin and sickness and death, but it's also about being fruitful in the midst of it because we have a mission to finish, to make disciple-making disciples, to treasure Christ in all of life, to share with people that, who don't know the joy of Jesus. And so when you pray for fruitfulness, you know what can happen? You can walk into the fire knowing that you're in the will of God. It might, it might singe, it might hurt, but God will be in the fire with you to help you be more fruitful. Unless, of course, you don't need to be more fruitful. Is there anybody here who has reached the max of the fruitfulness of their life? Raise your hand, and I will have Malachi follow up with you afterwards. <laughs> Is there anyone here who can say, I have enough strength, I have enough boldness, I don't need it anymore? They pray, listen, Peter and John, pretty bold, right? Pretty bold. And what do they pray for? More boldness. They pray for power, 
healings and signs and wonders to display the reality of God's power in, in the work of Jesus. Our prayers this morning should be for more, 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 more knowledge of the infinite God, more understanding of the inscrutable God, more faith in the immovable God, more confidence in the sovereign God, more trust in, the God's, in God's purposes for suffering, more spirit-filled moments to share the truth of Christ, more courage to live in a way that says we depend wholly on God. And when we do that, will we be shocked when God moves? Will we be shocked when we dream big dreams and pray big prayers? Will we be shocked when God answers those prayers? Verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness, just like they prayed. The big idea that comes out of this text is that prayer is the means by which God moves on our behalf. Or, as I have entitled this message, prayer mobilizes the mission Prayer mobilizes the mission. They pray, God immediately answers their prayer, and it's totally clear, I heard you. I'm listening. I'm answering. I've ordained these prayers in my sovereignty. I'm answering them in real time. It's almost like when you pray together as a church, you should almost be looking up at the rafters, like what's going to happen when, when God answers these prayers? Because he's on the move and he's unstoppable and he gives them the boldness that they prayed for. He gives them the confidence. Confidence in the sovereignty of God results in courage and power for the church. So these last three years have been absolutely wild. Absolutely crazy. And we're probably going to be in what, whatever post-COVID era is until the next era. Probably going to be in it for a while. Could God be using all of the turmoil of the world and all of the ways that the church is under pressure to unify us, to purify us, to call us to pray, to seek his face, to get us to stop wasting our time, to, pers to pursue the, the, the love of God in Christ, in unity, in faith, so that he bears much fruit on the earth? And the answer, friends, is yes. There's no expiration date on this. And so the church is called to pray. I'm going to close here with just a couple of very, very quick applications and then we're going to pray together. So here's four things I think that we can do, you can do, to help build this church through prayer. One is pray for unity in the church and then be the answer to the prayer. Stay connected, stay engaged, make a plan for engagement, follow your godly leaders. Pastors, keep leading humbly and wisely. Don't let division creep up in your midst. Don't even give one foothold to it. Don't let it in your own life and in your own heart. Pray for unity in the church. Pray for faith that when God is doing something difficult in your life, that you can respond by trusting him, knowing that he gave up his son for you, and that he's working good out all of your terrible situations in the end. Third, pray for opportunities to share the hope that you have in Christ, which can't fade with others. Fourth, take the courage. Pray to take the courage to take those opportunities to share the gospel. It's a joy to be with you this morning. Thank you for allowing me the privilege to preach God's word and to be with you as a body of believers. Would you pray with me?